here we go. This is my Bible. I believe it's God's word. I believe every word is true. And it's all that I need. Yes. Well, in these last chapters, you can really tell that Jesus is intensifying his message. You can tell that he is sending out his, his disciples and then the 72 and and. And he is teaching them how to do it. So he's teaching you and I how to not only receive the salvation that he so richly gives us, but he also then says, this is how I want you to serve. This is, this is what you've got to go in my strength and in my power. And you've got, to, you've got to go in my authority. And then he makes this statement, you've got to know. You have to know who I am. Because if you're going out there in me and you're living out the fruit of God's spirit. If you are living his spirit and you're seeing less and less of yourself because you are denying yourself, you are, you are taking what Jesus said so literally. Every day you deny yourself and you crucify self on the cross. So when he said deny yourself, take up the cross, let, let self die every day so that then you can choose to follow him, hear him, obey him, and so, you know, when he says, you got to know, because people are going to notice something about you. What, what are you going to say when they said, how come, how come you're, that Jesus is so important to you? How come you, you live different? How come you're, you, we know what you're going through, and yet you have this kind of outlook? How come? And you got to be ready with an answer. In fact, Peter even says that. Be ready with an answer when you're asked why you have the hope that you have because you are acting and believing so different than, than the world is. So are you ready with an answer? So he said, who do you say that I am? What are you going to tell them? You have to really be sure because you can't bring people any farther than what you are. So you just make sure you know who I am. And then um, he, you know, he moves on and he is so quick, like last week to, you know, to say, beware of the, of the times when, yes, you're going to be given power and strength to do things immeasurably more than you can ever imagine because it's the Holy Spirit doing it through you. But you're going to have a tendency because you're going to be fighting human nature tendencies all the time. That human nature just wants to elevate self. And he, he is, in the last two chapters, he is really hitting hard on that. You have to beware of, of, of who you are and how damaging it can be to the cause of Christ. And, and so, you know, to those nine, those poor nine that, you know, I think they were getting just a little too spiritually cocky and couldn't, couldn't cast that demon out and that temptation to think that, you know, we, we are just maybe, we're getting it and we don't have to, we, we don't have to be so needy. We don't have to be so clingy to Jesus. We don't have to, we don't have to need him like all the time because we're getting, we're getting it. And that, that just isn't true. And so more and more, he's going to be explaining that, how um, important it is that, that we can do nothing without him. And then we saw, oh, la yes, last week about that, that Good Samaritan story, such a, such a story that's familiar. And yet, when you look at it in the context of 
be careful of being so religious that you can almost have excuses why you don't do what you know he's put right in front of you. I mean, that story of the religious priest, the religious Levite, and how they could just walk right past this man, and how the Samaritan, who was so willing to put himself aside, but then we compared him to Jesus, and it just fits so perfectly. And Jesus said, you know, you're going to meet different people out there. You know, some are just going to believe you, and it's going to be wonderful, but there's going to be difficult people out there, and they're going to be fighting against you. And you have, to, you have to just know, you just have to know through the spirit that I give you just how you're to operate, how you're to act. And then, you know, then he, we closed last week with Mary and Martha and how... Um, I still had people questioning me about that this week, about, you know, it's okay to be a Martha, you said. And I said, absolutely. You know, so we need the Marthas who have those particular gifts. And we need the Marys who have those particular gifts. You know, it's these two sisters that, I mean, don't you have, have you know, with your own children, you know, you're raised in the same. And boy, you look at those two. I look at our two, two sons and I'm thinking they couldn't be more, they couldn't be more different. So, you know, some have different gifts and abilities, and that's the way God made us. But so, yes, Martha, what, what her problem was, was not that, that she, um, you know, wasn't sitting at the feet of Jesus. Because remember last week, we also said, what it, not literally sitting at the feet of Jesus. We can't literally sit at his feet. So what does that mean? You know, what does that mean to sit at his feet? So, you know, Martha could still have been doing, you know, sitting at the feet of Jesus in her mind and in her attitude and in her demeanor and in her countenance. You know, she could have still been hearing him and yet still going about her task. But what the problem was, which is all of our problems so many times, is that our eyes come off the reason why we're doing what we're doing. You know, the, the very idea of serving. She was serving the Lord and, and these men, and her eyes came off that and onto herself. And if I... If anything came across last week, I hope that you learned that. When your eyes come off the Lord and all of a sudden your service is not about him but about you. And then, you know, then we fall into that, that snit, you know, that crabbiness. It's that, you know, that self-pity and all that ugly stuff. But, you know, you see Mary who, yes, yes, she was doing right and yet... Later down the road, she too ran amok when her eyes went on her grief more than the one, you know, she was so disappointed that Jesus didn't come before Lazarus died. And so there she sits, just so she let her emotions get bigger than her faith. So you see, Mary's Mary, Martha's Martha, but the whole key to both personalities is we need to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. And, and no matter what our personality is, no matter what our gifts are. So there's many lessons that Jesus has been teaching. And now as we go into Luke chapter 11, I think now we are really kind of winding down. You're going to see Jesus really pull, pull out both barrels of the guns. I mean, he's going he's gonna to really intensify his words. And um, he's not going to spare any niceties. He's really going to... Um, 
he's going to really let him have it. Because what he, and the reason he's going to do that is because he loves them so much. And he wants them to finally see who he is. He wants them to, to not only see who he is, but how their, how their lives are not the way they even perceive, and especially what other people perceive, that he wants us to take a look at our heart. Are you real? So, you know, this in, this is really going to be, I had a lot of you say, you know, we came with um, questions not answered tonight, and, you know, I certainly don't want to appear like I've got all the answers, but let's, let's give it a whirl and see what the Lord tells us. One day Jesus was playing was praying in a certain place. Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us, teach us to pray. I think that they saw something when Jesus would pray, when he was connected to his father. And so here is a prayer that we call the Lord's Prayer. And even though it might not have every line that we're used to saying, you know, but, but these are the lines that Jesus said that was told to Luke. And so these are the ones we're going to concentrate on. But it is more than closing your eyes and folding your hands. Prayer is this connection. And so when we go over this prayer, you're going to see that when you're connected to the Lord Jesus, you, you have such a different um, empowerment. I think these disciples, when they saw Jesus um, in his time with his father, they saw something like revive or, you know, he might have been tired, but now it's like he's, he's been reinforced. It's, it's like you, you, you got your second wind. That's what this prayer does. And so often we feel the weakness come in when we've disconnected and again start looking at our own self. And so they said, teach us. We want to know how we can be and look and do like you when, when you're in this position. And so Jesus said, you bet. He said to them, when you pray, this is how I want you to pray. And we, like I said, we have called it the Lord's Prayer. And growing up, I don't know about you, but I don't think I went to one church service that we didn't say the Lord's Prayer. I mean, we had to say the Lord's Prayer. Or in our homes, we always said, quote the Lord's Prayer. It was kind of like a ritual. Before you knew it, I mean, you didn't even have to listen anymore because it's just, you know, it's just coming out. You know, you don't have to think because it's just so there. And I don't think God ever intended for this prayer to be a ritual. I think he intended it for us to see that when, when you are willing to even think about each one of these lines here, you will, you will want to stay connected to him. Like, call him Father. You know, call him Father. What does that mean? Well, it's a pretty wonderful word. When you, when you compare to what is a father to a child, well, a father is the authority figure. The father is the one that you can take his hand and you feel safe. You, when the father speaks, you listen. I mean, you, things went through my mind. Like, I don't know how many times my mom would say, you wait till your father gets home. I mean, you know, and it's just like there was something about when dad came home, you know. So, but yet, my dad was the one that would put me to bed every night. You know, yeah, he was the one that, that I was, you know, 
kind of fearful when my mom would say that, like, oh, dear. But yet, he was the one that would, you know, just be there. He was the one that I did feel safe with. He was the one that I adored because I knew he loved me back with a kind of love that, that I couldn't explain as a kid. I just could see it in his eyes. I could see it in his face. And there's something about Father. And yet before, you know, at the very second line, even though you feel that endearing, that endearing name, Father, and but before you even can for a second start to get kind of lax in that, like almost make him feel like you're on the same, uh, same kind of plateau, he said, um, just remember, hallowed be thy name. You know, yes, he is your father and he's intimate and he's close and he's loving and he's, he's your secure, he's your security, but never, ever forget that he is God Almighty. He is holy. He is the creator of the world. He holds the whole world in his hands. I mean, don't ever forget just who he is. And, you know, I'm just throwing this out to you because this is just my, my little thing. But, you know, I know we're taught that, that he's our Abba Father and how some then, then kind of say, you know, it's kind of like he's our daddy. And I, I just never, that's, this is just me. And I, I, just, I just always thought that word kind of minimized him. I don't know why. I just like the word Father here. And I think he does always want us to keep him in his rightful place and never to, to get him in a lower state at all. So anyway, Father, that endearing title, but hallowed be thy name. You are holy. You are almighty. I am awed by you. Thy kingdom come. Boy, this will be a phrase if you keep having this this so-called prayer going through your mind in the day, if you really want the, the words to be able to penetrate so you, you are reminded to stay connected to the Lord because it's so easy to disconnect, just keep remembering thy kingdom come, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. It's Jesus. And to know that you need a Savior and you have one. I mean, what a, what a great line. That kingdom has come. You have a savior. And there isn't anything or anyone that can change that. He is yours. And, and your soul is secure. All is well with your soul. Because the kingdom come. And then give us each day. Boy, the way that that was were to give us, you know, and when you have that kind of, of not only love and trust and respect and awe, you then can go to him and say, I need you. I need help physically, spiritually, and I am, give me this day what I need. And didn't you appreciate that this day? Just... Give me enough to get me through today. That really spoke to me. Those, when, when you go through each word, you know, because we always like to project ahead and, you know, give me what I need for the next 10 years. But he's saying, no, just stay connected to me and you can come to me and I will see to it that I can 
supply all your needs according to my riches and glory. Physically, spiritually, I can give you what you need for today. And then forgive us our sins. Forgive us our sins. And why this is so in this prayer that we need to go over and over because forgiveness, you know, forgiveness can be such a... um, Well, it is a huge word, but it's such a freeing word. I mean, he said, forgive every day. Whenever you know you have either said something, done something, or whatever, you know, and fess up. Fess up because I am there ready to forgive and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And then you can then go on in freedom, and you don't have to be weighed down and that is a great, because guilt can weigh you down and it can affect every, every, every area of your life. And he's saying, stay connected to me and know that when, when you do make a mistake and you're gonna, then just confess it and I am there to forgive you. But then as beautiful as that is, he goes right in and says, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. It's so easy to, to take his forgiveness But he says, I want you then to work that same forgiveness that I gave to you. And there were times, no, you didn't deserve it either. But I was willing to forgive you and cleanse you and free you. Well, I want that same kind of forgiveness to just work on through to you because there is nothing that breaks relationships more than an unforgiving spirit, grudge-holding. So he said, just you know, stay connected to me and and forgive. Accept the forgiveness because you're going to make mistakes, but but accept the forgiveness that I've offered to you. But then I then expect you to forgive. And that's not easy, but this is what he's saying. This is what's required. And when you stay connected to him, his spirit will help you. Because what, what helps you to forgive when, when someone doesn't deserve it? And we have all the excuses of, because I want them to pay. I want them to learn and, and all that kind of nonsense we play with. But he is saying, I want you to just watch how if you keep your eyes fixed on me and see what I've done for you, it's really not difficult. As you accept his forgiveness, you then reach out and forgive others. And what a difference that makes in relationships. And then and lead us not into temptation. He would never lead us into temptation. He, he, James 1 says he would never tempt us. Don't ever say God would tempt because he would never tempt. But when, when the words are, lead us not into temptation, it's pretty much Jesus says, we know you're going to be tempted. You know, you know, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, we know you're going to be tempted. But we also know that we're the only ones that can keep you from, from falling into temptation. And, and I think he is just making sure that we know, that we see that temptation is inevitable, but there is no temptation that we face that is not too hard if we go to the Lord. And, and he is the only one that can keep us from falling into that temptation because of the greater power that he has instilled within us. 
And then in the next verses, the first 13 verses, I think he's pretty much making sure that that we realize that we need to stay connected. If we're going to be sent out into this world, then we need to not only have the other chapters and what they've taught us, but we also need to remember that we got we got to stay connected. And we do it through this communication with him. And if we keep mindful of these phrases... And then he keeps going on the same kind of subject. He says to them, suppose one of you has a friend, and he goes to him at midnight and says, friend, lend me three loaves of bread because a friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. Now, you know, this is understandable. I mean, you know, there's not a, a, you know, a 24-hour market, you know, so he is in a predicament and he's coming at midnight, and all of these details are are on purpose because you know who is going to talk, who is going to be knocking on someone's door at midnight? And I think midnight back then is like you know middle of the night. So what does this mean about this person that is willing to go to this other person? He is desperate. I mean, who goes in the middle of the night when, when you know everybody's sleeping, you know? And he is willing to disturb that because he's desperate. And that word, we've talked about it a couple of weeks ago, that, that this desperate feel... Jesus loves it because he, if you're desperate enough, I mean, you think about the centurion. I mean, he had to be desperate for a Roman, to have a Roman centurion come to Jesus and ask for help, you know, to lower his pride. I mean, it had to be, it had to be desperation that caused that synagogue leader to kneel before Jesus. I mean, after all. I mean, it was desperation that caused this unclean woman to just sneak through, knowing full well that anybody she touches, she's going to make unclean. But she is willing because she knows if she just touches his garment, it's desperation that causes you to do what you think you can't do. And then you're going to start relying on God's spirit and you're going to start listening and you're going to start being bold. And, And so here he comes at midnight and he is desperate to feed these people that have come and then then the one who's inside verse 7 answers don't bother me the door is already locked and my children are with me in bed <laughs> did that kind of creep you out a little bit i mean i re- i read that and i thought oh you know but you, you it didn't take me long to figure out that you know back then they just didn't have separate you know three bedroom ranch you know no three bedroom ranch you, you know the whole family just kind of compiled into one room and and so you know he's probably saying do you know how long it took for us to get that baby sleeping you know and now you're pounding on the door so you know he's you know he's he's trying to make it logical no you know, um, the door's locked. My children are with me in bed. I can't get up to give you anything. You know, even though they're so-called friends or whatever, he's saying, no, I can't do it. Not going to get up. I tell you, though, he will not get up and give him the bread because he is his friend. So the friendship didn't cause him to get up. No, he was, he, friend or not, I mean, no, we're not getting up and disturb the, you know, wake the baby again, and no, no, friend or not, no, I'm not going to do that. But look at it, it says, but because, he, because of the man's boldness, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. 
you know, all of a sudden this whole guy's change, his whole tune has changed. I mean, he has just said, no, I know you're my friend and that, but no, I'm not getting up. And then all of a sudden this guy is on the other side and you know what? He's not giving up. And he is bold enough to just keep pounding on that door. I am desperate, and I really don't care what you think of me, and I really, I just really need your help. And you know what Jesus is doing? He's, when he's telling this, he's saying, and that's what I love. I love it when, when people are desperate and they they come to me with boldness. And, they, and that's why he then goes right into the next paragraph. I mean, he says, I love it when you ask me. If you ask, you will, it will be given to you. If you seek, you will find it. Knock and the door will be open to you for everyone. And he repeats, for everyone. Because I love it when you believe in me so much that you are not going to stop. You are persistent. You, you're, gonna, you're not going to let go of this. Ask and it will be, you will receive. If you seek, you will find in, to him who knocks, the door will be open. You can count on that. Now, we know that this is one verse that loves to be lifted out of context. And, and people get so deluded and, and get frustrated with the Lord. Like, you put in there, if you ask, we'll receive. And I have asked 150 times, and I don't see anything. And that's, you know, again, you have to take the whole chapter, and you can start to see what Jesus says. You know, I'm... If you are connected to me, if you know that I'm your father and that, that, that I am almighty and that, and that a savior has come, I'm taking care of all your needs for you physically, spiritually, you know, and he says, if you, if you forgive, if you are willing to come to me and accept my forgiveness and work that forgiveness through, I mean, you can tell we're in a tight relationship here. And a relationship is one that when it is working from both sides, it will be a healthy relationship. Like I said, we love it when Jesus does everything for us. We love it when he paid it all. And yes, his grace is sufficient. And we love it when, when he does everything that we want him to do. He forgives all of our sins and, oh, you know. But Jesus says, I want to teach you something, and that is, you have got to work the relationship also. You have got to show some initiative. You've got to do your part. Because did you know that when he says, you've got to ask. You know, you have not because you ask not. Um, you, anybody who lacks wisdom, all you have to do is ask and he will give generously. See, he, he is, it's not that he, he's trying to, you know, play games with you or trying to, you know, he's just trying to teach you and I that you have got to initiate, you've got to do your part too. This is how this relationship works. If I see that you are desperate, if I see that you have a desire, if I see that you really have surrendered to me and you really want the Holy Spirit to lead you because you are sick of seeing your worth self lead you and you are willing, I'll tell you, ask and I can't wait to give it to you. And if I see you seeking, and that is a big word, seek, because you know, that takes, it takes work, it takes time. If 
you are willing to seek, that shows such a desire. You can almost hear Jesus say, oh, I love that. They're asking because they want to know. They're seeking because they really want to know. They have a desire. And, and they're knocking. Do you hear that? They're knocking because they just aren't going to give up. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? I mean, he's trying to bring it back to that, that father thing. You know, a father loves his child so much. And he's saying, so you, you know that a father would never do that. A father would, would never give to a child who asks for a fish and give him a snake. I mean, to, to hurt him, to, to put him in a dangerous situation. I mean... And then if he asks for an egg and you give him a scorpion, I mean, a father just doesn't do that. In fact, he even goes on and says, if you then, though you are evil. I mean, he knows he's talking to people that, you know, even if you don't know the Lord, dads just don't do that. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. I mean... You see it so often, how, how fathers today, they, if they've had kind of a tough life, they're, they're going to do whatever it takes to make sure that their child doesn't have to go through what they went through. I mean, that's just the way we work. We try to make for our children a, a little easier way than what we had. But then he says, how much more, how much more will your father in heaven so he's flipping it. Now, now you who, who do know the Father, capital L, how, F, um, if you know that Father, how much more is your Father in heaven going to give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? See, talking about good gifts, because it says, you know, that we just naturally want to give good gifts to our children. I mean, we'll do it ever takes to get get to see their smile on their face when you know it's what they wanted. I mean, sometimes, you know, you have to almost have to work another job just so that, I mean, it's, I've heard about dads who are willing to do something just because they want to give the best gift to their child as they can. And and then Jesus understands that concept, but, he says, but then how much more your Father in heaven wants to give you the gift that it's above all gifts because it's the gift of God's Holy Spirit that now will start changing everything about you and it will be also for the good. You know, so often you, you know, people are, do not quite understand that whole thing about the Holy Spirit. Because I know people ask me sometimes, I just love those nine characteristics, those nine fruit of the Spirit. I love those characteristics of Jesus. I, I want that. And so, you know, I just simply say, well, you can't have the fruit of God's Spirit unless you have his Spirit inside of you. 
You know, it sounds almost silly, but you cannot expect to have those nine fruit. Now, yeah, the nine counterfeit, anybody can have, but the nine fruit of God's spirit, that comes when you have God's spirit inside of you. And, and the only place, the only place that the Holy Spirit will come inside of you is when you humbly come to the cross. And when you walk that, to that, that cross of on Calvary, when you finally admit that I can't do it, and, and you are finally willing to see yourself, which Jesus is so trying to get these Pharisees to see, that is the only, t- only place you're going to receive, because it's right there where Paul says, you want to be a follower of Christ? Well, then you have to hear this gospel, and you've got to choose to receive it, and, and follow the terms and then, and only then, well, then will you be given the gift of his spirit. And I don't know if that's totally understood sometimes. Because just, you know, just saying that you want to live out this fruit of the spirit, that's just not possible unless you're working with the spirit. And that's only going to happen if you've been to that old rugged cross. Because Jesus knows that there's no better gift that he can give you. Tell you, this chapter, again, the Lord just makes it so beautiful how Father, Son, and Spirit so work together. You know, you want to know the Father. You want to know more about the Spirit. Get to know Jesus. And there's something about the more you get to know Jesus, the more you understand the Father, and the more you understand the Holy Spirit. But they also work together. So those are some pretty important verses, 13 verses that show us how that we need so desperately to stay connected and we need to ask and we need to seek and we need to knock. He loves it when we come to him in desperation. Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute and when the demon when the demon left the man who had been the man who had been mute spoke, the crowd was amazed. I discovered that that a demon that was mute was really unusual. I mean, a demon inside of a person that caused that person not to be able to talk at all. So a demon that was mute was really unusual. Because any demon that we have been talking about in the last weeks, I mean, they had loud mouths. They were just always, you know, screaming out something, you know. So to have a, a mute demon... And then all of a sudden they hear that man speak. Yeah, the people were amazed. But some of them said, by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. Others tested him by asking for a sign from heaven. I mean, they just don't stop. And so now Jesus is being accused of casting out this demon through the power of Satan. Instead, you know, and, and I think this was just like, I can't almost handle anymore because, you know, to be able to be associated that his power and his work came from the devil. And in verse 17, you really see the son of, uh, the son of God and the son of man working so because the son of God, Jesus, Jesus knew their thoughts. You know, when he knew that some of them were accusing him of, 
of, you know, casting it out in Satan's power, but then he also knew others were testing him by asking for a sign. He knew what they were thinking. See, then you know he is the son of God. But then when he speaks, you can tell, yes, he is the son of man because he says any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined and a house divided against itself will fall. If Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? I say this because you claim that I drive out demons by Beelzebub. I think you see him as the son of man. You see him as a physical man because what he's trying to do is use these words and he's trying to almost say to them, do you hear yourself? Do you hear how that just doesn't make any sense? I mean, Satan fighting against Satan? I mean, that's like silver war. And it, it's kind of kind of brought me back to my history class of years ago. I mean, during, during you know, Abraham Lincoln quoted these same words during the Civil War. <laughs> A country divided cannot stand. And so Jesus is just trying to get these people to see you're not, you're not making any sense at all here. This is ridiculous. And then he says, now if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your followers drive them out? Kind of turned it around because he, he knew that, that you know, there were other people who were exorcists that were driving out demons. And, and you know, was, he called them. He says, now if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your followers so they must have known and had other followers that were doing that. So Jesus said, what do you say to them? Do you accuse them too? But then he says, if I drive out demons by the finger of God, if you want to read it, but if I drive out. I mean, this wasn't a, a statement that he was making saying, you know, but I might not be. Now, that, there was no question that Jesus was driving out demons with God's power by the finger of God. But he kind of put it in a question statement. But sometimes if I change the word to since, but since I drive out demons by the finger of God, it just kind of helps me understand a little bit because he is making such a statement. Then the kingdom of God has come to you. It's like he is really coming out clear saying, you know, you can accuse me all you want, but I have driven that demon out by the finger of God himself. It's his power that I have done that. Say what you want, but I know. And then when he says, then the kingdom of God has come to you. If you can accept the fact that I drove out that demon because of God's power, then you have to accept that I am, I am the one and I'm standing right in front of you. The kingdom of God has come. You cannot deny that. See, right there and then, there were so many chances in this chapter that Jesus wanted them to say because he made it so clear. I mean, trying to get them to see their ridiculous thinking. And then to say, no, I didn't. And down deep, you know I didn't cast out, out that demon saint's power, but in God's power. And then if you finally ha accept that, then you have to accept that I am the one. But no, 
they didn't. But then he moves on and kind of gives this illustration. He says, when a strong man fully armed guards his own house, his possessions are safe. When a strong man fully armed guards his own house, his positions are safe. I'm, I'm going to kind of look at these verses um, two ways. You know, I think we, we're living in a day and age and we can all fall to this so easy. You know, when, when the older you get, if you're comfortable, if you, you say like, okay, I, I think we've got enough money saved. I think we're ready in case we have to go to the nursing home. I think, you know, we're getting all of our, you know, ducks in a row. And, you know, then, oh, good, I, I, feel, I feel comfortable now. I feel safe because, you know, we've got all, everything lined up. You know, and it's, that's the strong man. I, we worked hard. We've got everything set, and um, we're comfortable, and we can breathe a sigh of relief, and oh, we're fine. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up the spoils. I mean, we all know the story of the depression. We know when the market crashed and, and when, when men lost everything. And we saw them jumping out of buildings because they didn't know how to handle it. They lost everything. I mean, a stronger power came. And to make it even more realistic to today, I mean, you think about the people that have built their, their Florida home and they've worked hard for it and they, they're there living in Fort Myers and, and they're right on the beach and, oh, this is just living. This is so living. And one hurricane, they go back and the, they go back and it's their, their place is gone. You know, we, when we get so concentrated on feeling so comfortable and safe from worldly possessions, when are we going to learn that there is a power source that's stronger that can show us just who is in charge? Now I'm going to kind of, I'm going to kind of change it and, and do it in a, a spiritual concept. When a strong man fully armed guards his own house, his possessions are safe. You know, there, there are so many people who are comfortable in their religion. They're comfortable in their religiosity. And, you know, unfortunately, they think that because of what they've done and who, who they are and how many committees they were on and their church attendance and, and, you know, all the things, and they're comfortable in that. Oh, good, the Lord's pleased with me. And you're almost getting so settled in that. But then, I like to look at this, but when someone stronger attacks and overpowers them, it's like, it's when someone dares to invite this person to a Billy Graham crusade or to a Bible study where truth is being preached and they are confronted with who they are. They're confronted with the, the emptiness of their heart and they're confronted with the lostness of their soul. And they have put all of, their, all of the religion and all of the works and all of the things that they thought really mattered that God would be pleased of. They were confronted with the truth and they had to really admit that's a stronger power. When the Lord, his spirit comes on somebody and they hear the truth, all of a sudden, everything changes. 
It's kind of like the Apostle Paul. Wasn't he comfortable? He was so comfortable in all of his religion. He was so comfortable that he was going to go out there and get rid of those nuts that were trying to put destroy the law and all the ways of the Judaizers. And, and then he was confronted with a stronger power that knocked him right off his horse. And all he could see was this light. And this stronger power just made him blind for three days so he could think about it. And so when Ananias came and he had thought about it for three days, all of a sudden he realizes, you know what, I, I didn't have it. As, as high up as he made, as he made it in, in, the, in the Sanhedrin, as impressive as he was with all his intellect and knowledge, a stronger power came over him because God had plans for him. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. It's kind of like right in the middle of these verses. It's just like verse 23. He puts it in there, and he says, you never, ever should think that you can play both sides of the fence, and you can't believe how many people try. You know, like, I'll give the Lord this day or this day, but, you know, there's no way he's going to tell me, you know, how I'm going to live my life Friday and Saturday night. But I'll be in church Sunday morning. You can count on that. And, and Jesus is trying to say here, no, no, it doesn't work that. This playing neutral thing doesn't work out. This playing 50-50, I mean, Jesus is saying here, if you're not sold out to me 100%, if your life is not surrendered to me 100%, if you haven't denied yourself and you're taking up that cross every day and you're willing to follow me, if you are not for me, you're against me. This was, this was a brutal verse, I thought. Because how many try to just try to play both? Because, you know, we have this group of friends here and we got this group of friends here and, you know, I can't act with this group, the way I act with this group. And Jesus, that's such a bunch of nonsense. I remember when we used to sing all, you know, in so many different kinds of places. And, you know, it was really true. You know, you try to always sing to your audience. You really do. I mean, you try to sing songs that are going to communicate to that certain audience. But yet, you always remain true to the message. So the style could maybe change now and then, but, but the message never did. And I can remember that, um, especially, you know, when, like if we were going to a different place every night and it was a different kind of style every night, and, you know, I can remember I was just getting so confused. I was starting to think to myself, you know what, I got to act this way with this one. I got to act this way and I got to say this when I'm with this one. And finally, I thought, no, I am not going to. What you see is what you get. And if you don't like it, then you've, if you've got a problem with Jesus, you're going to have a problem with me. And I don't, I don't belong here anyway. And it was so freeing because I thought, otherwise, you're, you were always trying to play this no, it's the same message all the time. And when you try to, to um, 
work accordingly. I tried to act with these friends different, and this friend different. Jesus, no. He was not with me is against me. And then verse 24, when an evil spirit, when an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes through arid places and seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. And when it arrives, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself. And they go in and live there. And the final condition of that man is worse than the first. Jesus is really quite serious in those verses, too. He says, you know, when an evil spirit comes out of a man, and the only way that can really make this, at least for me, clear, is you, know, you, you see somebody who has an addiction, and they, they, they go for help. And, and they, they go through all the treatment centers. And, I, I, you know, I remember, and I, my brother says I can tell this, and so on. Um, but... You know, there were so many times that, that Ross would try, you know, because he knew, and he he'll always say, started with one measly can of beer. If I never would have picked up that one measly can of beer with my friends in high school, you know, I would have never been caught in the hook of it all. But the fact remains that he is, and he, you know, his life is a mess, and, 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 you know, he knew it, and so he'd try, you know, oh, good, I, you know, he, he'd say, oh, I went, I've gone a couple, a couple weeks, I haven't drank for a couple weeks, and, oh, you know, it was great. But, you know, nothing really changed, and before you knew it, he was back at it again, you know. So I watched that happen. But then it's like, because the Lord loved him so much, the Lord just kind of said, sorry to have to do this to you, Ross, but, you know, so he's in Kentucky. He, he is, you know, he's drinking and driving, and he's, you know, probably intoxicated and gets pulled over, and they throw him in jail. And, you know, he's so good looking that all the other guy prisoners were calling pretty boy. I mean, it, it was, you know, just such a sad state, and he didn't know where to turn. And, you know, for all of our growing up years, my, my brother really didn't like me at all because I was to blame for I got all the attention, he got nothing. And that's why he was, you know, that's why his life was so messy, you know. And, you know, you always got to blame somebody, and I was it. So we never got along. Oh, sad. Now, the thing is, though, I, and he was embarrassed for one thing. He thought I was way over the top and all this. But anyway, but then when he's, when he's in jail, when he's thrown in jail and, you know, being called pretty boy and all this kind of stuff, I mean, he's desperate. There's that word. Oh, he's desperate. Now he calls his sister. All of a sudden, he calls his sister, you know. And, and you know, he, so he, he comes home because Tom and I said, well, we're going to be here for you, you know. And it's like all of a sudden, he is finally saying, you know what, I, I can't keep playing this anymore. I, I've seen what it's done. Broken marriage, you know. So anyway, he comes home, and he gets to this treatment center. So, you know, one of those, and he, that you go in and you stay there and so then when it's when it's time I mean he's been there over a month I don't two months I don't know what it is but I forget now but he he you know we we went many times but the last night of course and I've told you about this you know his graduation and 
And this is when I, when I, I thought of the details when I was doing the lesson this week, because I remember watching in that, in that room with all the other graduates, and they were all so accomplished. They felt so accomplished, like, oh, man, we've gone two months without a drink. We are cleaned out. We are ready to face the world. And you could just see they're ready to go because everything's, you know, it's through my system. It's like it, the house has been swept clean, and, and they were ready. I remember before we left, and I didn't know if this was going to embarrass Ross or not, but I had to say it. And I said, you know what? This isn't going to work, Ross. You know, yeah, you're cleaned out, and we're, we applaud you for, for all what you've gone through in here. And, and, but it's not going to work. It's not going to last. Unless, unless you fill that space with Jesus, it's not going to work. You, you need a, a power source that is greater than your addiction because otherwise it's going to come back and it's going to come back with a vengeance. It's going to come back with friends. And that's when I quoted, I will lift up my eyes to the LC. It always, you always need, the, Jesus loves desperation and he loves humility. And when, you're hum, when you humbly admit, I will... I can't do it unless I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? It comes from the Lord. And he will never sleep. I can come to him any time. I mean, that psalm just, I didn't know how he'd take it. But you know what? It, it, it works. It does. This really works. You feel, you are willing to feel your, and I don't care what, I'm using this as an example, but in the addiction, and you feel accomplished when, when the Lord is willing to remove that from you, and you feel clean, and, but if you don't fill yourself back up, I mean, he, here's that relationship again. He's willing to do his part and to help you get all cleaned out. But then he's expecting you then to surrender and get him to take over your life because you can't do it without him because you do need him every hour. I'm telling you, you know, for, for a brother and sister that did not get along at all, I don't think there could be a closer one today. He's 35 years sober, and he's probably one of the best AA mentors that AA uses. And he doesn't take any credit. He just knows it's true. The only way, because he had many falls, ups and downs. He had many times that he tried to do it in his own strength and it didn't work. And now he watches what's happening. To be able to enjoy his marriage, his children, his grandchildren now. I, I sit back sometime and I just, I'm watching him with his, with his three grandchildren now. And I just, only you, Lord, can do that. You did your part, but Ross did his. And he filled his heart up with Jesus. As Jesus was saying these things, see, I think this lady, this lady in the crowd, I mean, I think she couldn't contain herself because, you know, when, when Jesus is talking, when we're up to verse 26, it's been such intense talking 
that that this woman, I think, just had that rise. I think she just jumped up and had a shout. Oh, blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. I mean, she just couldn't help it. If it wasn't for that mother of yours, we wouldn't have you being able to tell you tell us all this. But how often don't we do that when we hear the greatest news and all of a sudden all of our sights and all of the credit goes to the messenger. Now I know we're talking about Jesus here, but Jesus even says, no, you know, it's not, it's not who I am that did it. It's the power of an almighty God that did it through me. And so he said, don't give me the credit. He said, but rather, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. That's what changes your life. I love to be the messenger, Jesus says. I personally, too, I love to be the messenger of this truth. But we, we, can't, we can't put the emphasis on the messenger because it's not the messenger that's got the power. Now, we, we don't misunderstand. I'm not trying to discredit Jesus, but I can't help but see the way he answers this woman. I don't want you looking at me thinking, oh, you know, because I can understand her just jumping up and she's just thrilled with this guy. And haven't we seen so often in, you know, how we we hear these these religious, you know, big churches or some of these ministers on TV and or whatever and all the emphasis goes on them, and then we see the downfall. And it's, there's such that fine line between people missing the message, and all they think about is the messenger. All credit goes to the messenger. messenger. And Jesus says, no, no, no. Blessed are those who, who are willing to hear the word of God and do it. That is what's going to change you. As the crowds increased, Jesus said, see, can't you see, he's just, it gets more intense. I mean, you know, more and more people are coming, and Jesus says, this is a wicked generation. That's how he starts his talk. This is one wicked generation. It asks for miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, so also will the Son of Man be to this generation. The queen of the south will rise at the judgment with the, with the men of this generation and condemn them. Do you notice how often he says, this generation? He wants to make sure they know he's talking about them. The queen of the south is going to rise up and see now he's going to say that word judgment again. There's going to be a judgment day, folks. That's what he's saying. You can, you can pretend it's not going to happen, but it, it's going to. And I'm trying to warn you now before it's too late. You all know the story of Jonah. I mean, they all could relate to that story. It was such a great example. But then when he said the queen of the south came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now one's greater than Solomon here is here. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now one greater than Jonah is here. Boy, is he ever trying to get them. Now it's just like he's planting a little seed because, you know, think about the story of Jonah. That's what he's wanting to do. Think about how that worked with Jonah. 
You know how God said to this prophet, I need you to go to Nineveh because I'm going to destroy those people. If they don't repent, they're going down. And you have to give them one more chance. You know, and of course, the story goes, and oh, good, there's a ship to Tarshish. I think I'll take that one. That looks like a whole lot better deal to me. And so off he goes. Well, you know, as the Lord would have it, you know, the storm rises up. Joan is smart. He knows it's all his fault. He says, toss me over. So they toss him over. Here comes this big fish, swallows him whole. How long is he in the belly of that fish? Oh, like Paul being blind for three days, in the belly of the fish for three days. And there he has time to think. And then the fish spits him out, and he goes to Nineveh. And he preaches, and he tells them that they better repent, or they're going to be destroyed. And the people repented. And so Jesus is planting the seed. And you know what? Generation, this generation, you wicked generation, guess what? You need the same thing. You need me to die on that cross and for three days be in the grave and then come out of that grave. You need the same thing. That's what's going to save you. It's the only thing that's going to save you too. He's trying to get them again to see, associate that story of Jonah and then to see this is what I've come to do for you, you wicked generation. Because it's your only hope. Basically he's saying I'm your only hope. And no one lights a lamp and put it under, puts it under, uh, puts it in a place where it will be hidden or under a bowl. Instead, he puts it on the stand so that those who come in may see the lamp, see the light. But he said this already. I mean, he's repeating this. This is an analogy. He really wants us to understand. Because when you hear the gospel and you receive it, it is just like a light that shines. All of a sudden, you can see clear. Your spiritual ears and eyes have been opened, and you see far more than what, what you did before. And it comes out of your every pore of your body. It comes out of your face, your countenance. It comes out of your actions and your attitude, how you live. And he said you shouldn't be, you should be, so excited about that to love to tell your story that you're not ashamed of this gospel it was another point that we had to hear be taught again don't be ashamed of this gospel you don't put it it doesn't change your life and then you hide it no people need the lord people need to hear and how they're going to hear unless someone's telling them Your eye is the lamp of your body. And when your eyes are good, your whole body is also in full, is full of light. But when they are bad, your body also is full of darkness. And the, I mean, we understand that, right? That makes sense. But look at verse 35. See to it then that the light within you is not really darkness. He was talking smack dab to those Pharisees. Who are, who are acting like they're so lighted up. But he says, but really, you're really walking in darkness. Therefore, if your whole body is full of light and no part of it dark, it will be completely lighted as when the light of a lamp shines on you. And when does that happen? Because doesn't that sound good? To be completely lighted I like those two words. I, that's a goal. I want to be completely lighted. As when the light of a lamp shines on you. 
when does that happen? It's when you choose to understand personally the word and the work of Jesus Christ. That is when you will, you will be completely lighted. See, so the more that you understand the work and the word through the Holy Spirit of, of Jesus, the, the more light you're going to receive. And our goal is to be completely lighted. So there's no dark self that moves in there. And then he moves into this, this last part of this chapter. And again, when you, when you read the woe to you, I mean, I, I, I know that he, you know, he is just, I think he, he's just weeping inside. I think we want to think that he's upset and he's mad, but he, he's not. He is, he is just like, woe to you. Maybe if I put it this way, you will see how serious I am. And that you've got to take a look at what's happening and that the consequence of this is going to be disaster if you don't listen. When Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him, so he went in and reclined at the table. But the Pharisee, noticing that Jesus did not first wash before the meal, was surprised. You know... You, you can't help but look at that and think, well, you know, if he had dirty hands, you know, after coming through a pandemic, we're always squirting stuff, you know. So, you know, you're thinking this is a hygiene problem. And believe me, this is not a hygiene problem. This is a heart problem. It has nothing to do with the fact that Jesus had dirty hands because he didn't. What ha they are just so caught up in their 700-some rules and this whole ceremonial washing, and this is such a farce. Just another way that they're going to try to get them. But, but look at here. Then the Lord said to him, because remember, it says that, that he reclined at the table. And I thought, I can just picture him reclining at the table, you know, and he's, he knows full well that, that what they're thinking. And he knows he doesn't have dirty hands. And they're just, you know, they, they just have such a dark heart. And, and he just kind of says, all right, now then, now You've made it clear what you think of me. Now I am going to tell you what I think of you. And these next verses are so, I don't know how, but they do. But I don't know how they cannot see themselves in this. Now then, you Pharisees. Oh, you clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. And then he calls them, you foolish people. I mean, do you realize who he's calling? You foolish people? The highest of the high. And he's saying, you're a fool. But you know, the psalmist says, the one who says there is no God is a fool. And, and basically, these Pharisees, as much as they're playing the religious game, their heart really says, no, you're not, because we're pulling our ears, we're closing our eyes. No, you are not God. So Jesus come, you're a fool. I'm standing right here, and you won't see it. He thought, maybe if I call them you foolish people, maybe they'll sit up and take notice. No. 
Then he goes on and said, did not one who made the outside make the inside also? But give what is inside the dish to the poor and everything will be clean for you. Oh, was that ever sweet. I mean, he said, just try it. Just try this once. I kind of, I couldn't, I couldn't help but, but write this down because I, I thought, you know what, gee, to me, this is just my opinion when I, when I hear Jesus say that. I thought, it's like Jesus is saying, do you just try once. Do one single, loving, unselfish act. Just try it once. And have it be not for any of your self-gain, but you do it totally because you see a need and you put yourself aside and you do it for them. It's like Jesus said, I guarantee you, everything will start changing because there is nothing like that. There is no feeling like that. When you put yourself aside, and you are willing to do one single loving, unselfish act for someone, and you watch the results of that, your eyes are not on you. I think he's just saying, just try once for me. And then he starts with, woe to you. Woe to you, Pharisees. Because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. Oh, you should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. You see, do you realize that, that I can see what you're trying to do is you're trying to, you know, give um, your 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 tenth and your mint and your rue and all your garden herbs because you think that'll appease me. You think, oh, then everybody can see how good you are. And you are so wrong in that. And what people need is the love of God coming out of you. And, and you're using this Again, for your gain. And then it goes on and he doesn't stop. Woe to you Pharisees because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace. Oh, do you ever love walking that center aisle to the front row? Do you ever love it when you're in the market and everybody's calling you? Oh, so wonderful to see you, Rabbi. So wonderful to see you. Oh, you love it. But you, you use your religion because you want to become famous. You use this because you're, you'll be popular. But it's all about you. You know, being in the singing field, I'm sorry to have to say this to you, but being in the singing field for so many years, you know, you know there's many wonderful people, believe me, but I'll tell you, there's nothing more nauseating when you know that someone is just using that beautiful music for their own gain. And you think you can't tell? Oh, you can tell. But I thought that, I thought, you know, you're using this something that can be so wonderful and you're using it all for your own sake. And then, and then he goes on and says, woe to you, I'm warning you, because you are like unmarked graves which men walk over without knowing it. 
He tried making it clear. I mean, you, you've probably had this too, and you feel so disrespectful, but you, you walk over a grave, and if it's not marked, I mean, you don't know that, and you find out that you just walked over somebody's grave. And, but Jesus used that as, you know, people are looking at you, and they're seeing, they're seeing you, and yet they have no idea how rotten you are inside. You're just like an arm unmarked grave. They're totally oblivious. One of the experts in the law answered him, teacher, when you say these things, you insult us also. What did you do when you first read that? I don't know about, about you. I busted right out laughing. I mean, you know, here, here, he's, I take offense. Can't you hear him say that? I take offense in what you're saying. You're insulted. You insulted us. You just love the way Jesus replied. He probably, he looked right at him. He looked right at him. And you experts in the law, woe to you because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. Aren't you glad last week that we had that familiar parable that just reminded us, you know, you got the priest and you got the Levite, you know, oh, we got to get to our temple. We got to get to the synagogue. People need to hear from us. We got to quote those words from Isaiah. We got to make sure that we load them down with all the 700 some rules. And yet there's a dying man and they walk right around him. Woe to you, you experts of the law. Phony. Woe to you because you build till you build tombs for the prophets, and it was your forefathers who killed them. <laughs> oh, you just love to be so big, shot. You're going to build these tombs, and and you know what? You testified that you approve of what your forefathers did. How phony is that? You just want to look good, so you build the tombs, but basically your forefathers, and you are right there with them because you, you agreed that what they did was right. They killed the prophets, and you built their tombs. Because of this, God in his wisdom said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill, and others they will persecute. So, you know, Jesus said, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send myself. I'm going to send the apostles out, and, and we know we have what happened to Jesus. You know, we know what happened to the apostles. So you know what? You're, you're continuing this same kind of, of killing the prophets, getting rid of this message. Therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who was killed between the altar and the, in the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for it all. It's kind of like a repetition of, you've had so many opportunities. I've been out here for three years. I've done everything and showed you everything but yet, you won't believe me. You, you choose to not see. You choose to not hear. I think in verse 52, the last woe is probably, to me, is the lowering of the lowest boom. You'd think that they would care about this. But this is what self-centeredness looks like. This is what who cares really looks like. 
This is what a, a dark, cold, rotten, evil heart looks like. Woe to you experts in the law, because you have taken away the key to knowledge. You held it all. You could have been so influential in every way. You yourselves have not entered, and you have hindered those who were entering People were looking to you. They were trusting you. They were, they were expecting you to give them the truth. And they were believing you, hook, line, and sinker. And because you didn't choose, because you didn't choose it, because you didn't want it, and you didn't live it out the way it's supposed to be. You were, your inside is so rotten, even though they can just see the outside. And they're trusting you. And you are in, hindering them from the gospel. You're hindering them from knowing their Savior. You are hindering them from eternal life. I mean, don't you think that somehow that would have hit a chord? It's one thing about yourself, but if you're causing, it's like what Jesus said before when he said, you cause one of these little ones to stumble. You are responsible Oh, can you imagine Judgment Day when some of these men who just could not give up themselves and humble themselves to see the truth right in front of them, they're going to be confronted with Jesus. You know, it's one thing to, to say, the, you know, the pagans or the people that chose, you know, to remain in the world and worldly and all that. But to me, it's just going to be so awful to see these religious people standing before the Lord at judgment and to hear the verdict. You know, that, that to me, I don't know how they could not hear that. Because look, look how this chapter ends. When Jesus left there, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, instead of hearing this whole chapter and having so many opportunities, Jesus made it so clear. He was so passionate. He was so intense. I think there were probably many times he just wanted to grab them by the shoulders and say, can't you see yourself? Instead of seeing themselves, they began to oppose him fiercely and to besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something he might say. So instead of humbling themselves and seeing what could happen to their lives, they instead respond with outrage accusations. Hmm. Tell you, it's a big lesson. That's all I can say. It's very confronting. But I think it's one we have to hear. So, Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for loving us and giving us what we need. Sometimes we don't want to hear it. We don't really want to see ourselves in this way. But we have to. We just have to see ourselves in this way. And so may we, in this week, maybe reread this. Maybe we didn't understand it before. Maybe somehow through this night, through your spirit, you just made something clear. Maybe we didn't understand it because we didn't want to. But now we're pretty much, we don't want to be like the Pharisees. We don't want to take something that's right there in front of us and push it aside. And we certainly, because we all have people that are watching us and following us and trusting us, and Father, may it never be said of any one of us that we are hindering 
anyone from knowing you by the way we are, by the way we look, by the way we live. Father, may we be that complete light that so reflects you. Father, we just pray this all in our Savior's name. Amen.